Hi, good evening, everybody. So last night, Mr. Gabe uh, uh, taught about Mark chapter 1. He went over a little bit in chapter 2. So I'm going to be um, teaching a little bit at the end of chapter 2 because it kind of ties in with the start of 3. But I enjoyed his teaching last night. I'm sure some of you did too. Um, funny enough, Mr. Gabe didn't actually go over my teaching or proofread it before this. So uh, don't be alarmed if you see him standing on the side with a shepherd crook kind of like waiting to pull me off. Uh, so, all right, if you'd like to uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 2, we'll start in, um, verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples, this is Yeshua they're talking about, began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Yeshua said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. We'll go ahead and read a little bit in chapter 3, too. He entered a synagogue again, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And Yeshua said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath, or to do harm? to save a life or to kill, but they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, remember that term? He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might put him to death. So uh, this story, these two are kind of tied into each other. It's about the uh, Pharisees trying to trap Yeshua uh, for their definition of working on the Shabbat. Um, so the teaching that I'm going to be talking about today is centered around a theme of a, having a pure heart. Having a pure heart and having a, hard, a hardened heart. Or, um, so, and a pure heart, I'm going to be talking about what it is and why it's important to have one. So, looking at chapter 2, when he was in the grain fields, um, him and his disciples were walking through, and they were picking the grain and eating it. Now, uh, first of all, you'd think, this is stealing, because that grain field didn't belong to any of them, I don't think, and uh, they were eating of it freely. Um, but if you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 23, Verses 24 and 25, it says this. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat grapes until you are satisfied, but you are not to put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads of grain with your hand, but you are not to use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So God actually put that law in there as a little way to say, you know, you can enjoy yourself. When you're walking through somebody else's grain field, you can, as you're walking along, you can 
take the grain or a grape from a vineyard, just pop it in your mouth and eat it. But the second you take a sickle to that grain or you start gathering grapes in a basket, that would be considered stealing. The disciples weren't doing that though. They were just taking the grain and uh, rubbing it together and putting it in their mouth and chewing it. So the Pharisees weren't actually accusing them of that because they knew of this law. What they were accusing them of was, um, they said, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So why did they think that that was working? Well, uh, the ancient sages took the word work and they tied it to anything to do with building the tabernacle in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt. Um, they compiled this list of things that they called the 39 works or the 39 melachot. So um, this is found in the Mishnah actually. I have it here. Um, I'm actually going to read every single one of them to you. It's going to take a while, but it's important to pay attention to the first things in the list and the very last thing. So this is found in uh, Mishnah Shabbat chapter 7 verse 2. This fundamental Mishnah enumerates those who perform the primary categories of labor prohibited on Shabbat, which number 40 less 1. I don't know why I didn't say 39, but... They are grouped in accordance with their function. One who sows, and one who plows, one who reaps, one who gathers sheaves into a pile, and one who threshes, removing the kernel from the husk, and one who winnows threshed grain in the wind, and one who selects the inedible waste from the edible, and one who grinds, and one who sifts the flour in a sieve and one who needs dough, and one who bakes. Additional primary categories of prohibited labor are the following. One who shears wool, one who whitens it, and one who combs the fleece and straightens it, and one who dyes it, and one who spins the wool, and one who stretches the threads of the warp in the loom, one who constructs two meshes tying the threads of the warp to the base of the loom, and one who weaves two threads, and one who severs two threads for constructive purposes, and one who ties a knot, and one who unties a knot, and one who sews two stitches with a needle, as well as one who tears a fabric in order to sew two stitches. Uh, actually, the page just uh, cut out on me. Okay. From there on, um, uh, let's see. Okay, one who ties a knot, one who unties a knot, one who sews two stitches. One who traps a deer or any living creature, and one who slaughters it, one who flays it, one who salts its hide, a step in the tanning process, one who tans its hide, one who smooths it in removing hairs and veins, one who cuts it into measured parts, one who writes two letters, and one who erases in order to write two letters. So if you're taking notes on the teaching during Shabbat, that would be considered work. Uh, one who builds a structure, one who dismantles it, one who extinguishes a fire, and one who kindles a fire one who strikes a blow with a hammer to complete the production process of a vessel. And this is the last one that I wanted you to pay attention to. One who carries out an object from domain to domain. All these are primary categories of labor, and they number 40 less one. So, if you remember, there's a, two instances in the Gospels where Yeshua was accused of breaking the Sabbath apart from healing. We're not talking about when he was healing people, but two instances when he was accused of doing work on the Sabbath. Uh, one of them was here when he was with his disciples and they were picking grain and they were threshing it and 
grinding it with their teeth, they could say. Um, and another one, does anybody else remember what the other one is? Xavier? Pick up your mat and walk. Yeah, two people, yeah, you got it. It's when he told the, uh, the man in John chapter 5 uh, to pick up his mat and walk. He actually had healed the man, but they were accusing him of um, telling the man to break Shabbat because of him carrying his mat. And so, if you remember the things on the list, uh, the very first things were about gathering uh, crops, reaping, and threshing, grinding, all things to do with crops. And um, the last thing on the list was carrying an object from domain to domain. So, um, this symbolizes, in a way, it's kind of interesting how the Gospels don't record any other instances. So I think it's kind of symbolic that when it comes to human need, like how the disciples were hungry and they needed food, and how this man was now healed and he could go home, when it comes to human need, all other things on that list, between the first and the last, are irrelevant. So, first of all, this was a, a man-made um, tradition to follow these 39 works that you can't do on the Sabbath. This wasn't anything that God told them. God just said, don't do any work. And there were a few instances in, instances in the Bible where people were punished for doing work, but it never really specified what work was. So they came up with it themselves. So the Pharisees kind of made it a little bit difficult, though, because you basically couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. You could walk around as long as it wasn't too far, and um, you couldn't carry anything with you, couldn't carry your Bible, or I guess they didn't have personal Bibles back then, but nowadays that would be almost impossible. So, um, Yeshua says that his yoke is pleasant and his burden is light in Matthew 11. But there is still a yoke and there is still a burden. So, if you look at yourself and your yoke is hard and your burden is heavy, it is not Yeshua's. It is one that you put on yourself or that somebody else put on you. So you need to remember that. So, um, to add to this event, uh, Yeshua tells the story of King David eating the showbread. Uh, well, in Leviticus chapter 24, it was said that um, that was only for the priests to eat for Aaron and his sons. Only they could eat the showbread. Um, and yet, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, it tells of uh, King David with all of his men that were starving, and they came over to the priests and they ate the showbread, and it was forgiven to them. It was permitted. So, um, in Matthew chapter 12, Yeshua states that the priests violate the Sabbath and are innocent. So, this is be because, you know, they're told not to work on the Sabbath uh, as a community. Israel's not to work. But then he says to the priests, I have a special task for you, and that you are to do these certain things on the Sabbath. And so they're kind of uh, permitted to do these certain works on the Sabbath because God told them specifically to. So if the priest, uh, the services in the temple trump the Sabbath, the Sabbath, and then if David eating the showbread, so if human needs trump the priestly work, then 
in levels, human needs trump the Sabbath. That's just another uh, story that he used to tell that. So um, the reason they were e able to eat the bread, remember, is because um, the priest asked them if they were uh, clean. And he said that uh, we are all, uh, we all have clean hands and no one has been sexually immoral. They all had a pure heart. So they were permitted to eat the bread. Um, so uh, they asked Yeshua at that time, um, not in this chapter, but which command trumps everything? Which command is the one that is most important? And he told them to love the Lord and uh, to love your neighbor as yourself. So um, what I won't do is I won't give you a list of what you can and can't do on the Sabbath because I'd just be making another 39 melachot, and that would be kind of a waste of time. So what I could do is give you the tools that you need in order to determine, to decide for yourself uh, what you think would be permitted and what wouldn't. So, first of all, you're not to do anything that distracts you from loving God or loving your neighbor. That's about it. That's, yeah, basically, that's the most important thing. Um, so, say if you were, you know, going to, driving to fellowship to uh, go worship with other believers, that's perfectly fine. If you went out and played a game of catch with your family, that's fine also. If, you, if you're going along the road and you see somebody walking along and they need a ride, then, you know, picking them up, driving them halfway across town to where they need to go, that's perfectly fine because you're loving your neighbor and you're loving God. Now, an example, you know, something that you wouldn't do would be uh, finishing your little model airplane locked up in your room by yourself when you could be doing other things. So, uh, um, in Mark 3, Yeshua states that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. While he may have been uh, breaking the man-made Sabbath in order to do good, he was not breaking God's Torah because it is lawful or is in agreement with the Torah to do good, which is what he was doing on the Sabbath. And um, he was saying that he was, um, that the Pharisees had hardened hearts and that they weren't able to see. And so that is why they weren't able to tell that he was doing good on the Sabbath. And they were just so wrapped up in their own little laws of, uh, that they had created themselves that they didn't get the bigger picture. So, of course, you're supposed to refrain from working on the Sabbath, as we were commanded. But if you absolutely have to help someone out in an emergency, um, don't take any payment for it. That's, that's not right. You know, charging somebody um, anything on the Sabbath, um, that's breaking the Sabbath, even if you're helping somebody out for the sake of good. Um, and just remember that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So, you know, if somebody's over there struggling, like, hey, I, I really need you to help, come help me out. This is an emergency. And you're like, oh, sorry, it's the Sabbath. I can't. Then um, you got to think, what would God want you to do? You know, like those, uh, what would Jesus do? Bracelets, I guess. So would it be better for you to, you know, sit at home and think, oh, I'm so good. I'm keeping his Sabbath by not going out and working for, the, you know, helping this guy get his ox out of the ditch? Or would it be better for you to um, to go over there and help the person in a tough situation. And um, 
I'll let you decide for yourselves. I think everybody knows the answer to that one. But uh, in Mark chapter 4, moving on from uh, the discussion of the Sabbath, uh, Yeshua goes into the parables, the kingdom parables, except something that's interesting is the book of Mark only records three out of the seven kingdom parables. Um, and another interesting thing is that they all have to do with seeds. And uh, this actually ties in pretty well with Patrick's teaching. Uh, I was, <laughs> when I was over there listening to it today, I was thinking, like, oh man, that's so good. Like, he was saying exactly what I had written down. So uh, it's pretty cool. But um, in uh, ch chapter 4, verse 10, the disciples are asking him why he speaks in parables. Like, why does he teach in parables? And of course, he answers them with a parable. But, um, <laughs> so they're wondering, are, are parables meant to, like, obscure the truth? Like, why would you, why don't you just give it to him straight? Um, but first we need to understand what a parable is. So the, the Hebrew word for parable is mashal, spelled mem shin lamed. And uh, if you notice, the um, book of Proverbs is the same exact word, is a plural called mishle. So a parable is like a proverb, kind of. They are very close, closely related. Um, the first instance this word was used was in Genesis chapter 1, actually, verse 16. And it's an interesting use because you wouldn't expect it to be used here. But it says this, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser, the lesser light to govern the night. So the word mashal is actually used in the word govern. So God made the two great lights, the greater light to mashal the day and the lesser light to mashal the night. Now, if you think parable, proverb, you know, govern, rule, uh, doesn't really line up. But if you start um, reading a little bit more, you'll find the next uh, usage of this is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Um, after Adam and Eve sinned, God is speaking to them. And he says, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. He shall mashal you. So, um, why did God use the word mashal here? Um, there are other words for, like, ruling. Uh, like, for instance, the word rada, which is spelled uh, resh, dalid, hey, which, um, that's used in Genesis chapter 1, 26, when he's telling man that they'll have dominion over all of the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the land so that's kind of like a ruling like um kind of it's more of a harsh conquering you know you are the owner of this kind of in other verses in the bible it's used as like you know the enemies would come and rada they'd conquer them so it was more of a crushing reign so god didn't use the word rada here but instead mashal so, um, he wasn't saying, you know, uh, when he was telling Eve that Adam would mashal her, that doesn't mean for, you know, that he would be the boss of her and control everything she does. Um, well, if we see what it means um, in the first use, it wasn't something to control the day or the night, 
but something to distinguish the day from the night and to bring the day into focus. So this is kind of what men are to do with their, um, with their wives, to uh, be the spiritual and physical leaders of their families. However, a leader is not a dictator. For example, the elders at DMF. Is that Miss Carol? <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, they need to be reminded of this. But uh, the elders at DMF, you know, uh, Mr. Gabe, uh, Mr. Bobby, and my dad, um, they're not considered, you know, like our kings and our rulers, but they have a certain authority on how we should live out our lives to some degree. Um, they can't, you know, their, their word is not the end law, but they are kind of the, um, the boundaries, so to speak, like a fence. So, a parable, a mashal, does not mean something that rules over a concept, but instead something that focuses that concept and gives it boundaries that we can understand. So, that kind of ties in how that works with a parable. A parable is, if you have this concept that you can't understand, a parable gives it this fence, this boundary, that puts it in a place that you can easily interpret it and understand it. So, you see how that kind of ties in with the whole govern the day and the night thing? Um, so, in a sense, uh, Mashal provides a way for maximizing the effectiveness of a thing. Um, so, the Midrash Rabbah gives us some ideas as to what a parable is. Um, I, like, I like this one. It's, um, it's a parable about explaining what a parable is. It's kind of funny. But... They say, it's like a king who lost a valuable coin or jewel in the dark. So he takes a cheap candle and lights the wick, that small, indistinct, uh, insubstantial wick that costs next to nothing, provides light to find something truly valuable. So the parable itself is not a value, is not a value but what it does to access the greater truth. So if, um, you know, when you're teaching math, to kids, like a kindergartner, you don't want to start with complex equations and numbers, like, you know, teaching them logarithms straight off the bat. Um, but you start with, you know, teaching them cookies and squares of chocolates. One little square of chocolate plus another is two. You know, that's pretty simple stuff. Um, it's something that they understand better than anybody else. Uh, so if you can imagine God revealing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to us, um, to his level of understanding, that would just blow our minds, probably literally. So, um, so instead he teaches us with cookies and chocolates, these parables. Um, so as we take a look at these three parables, I'm only going to be covering three of them, uh, the, sower of the, the parable of the sower and the soils, the parable of the, uh, the seed, which is it's kind of a small one. And then finally, the parable of the mustard seed. They're all about seeds, funny enough. And uh, the seeds in, the, in these parables, um, I like to believe, all symbolize um, the word of God or the kingdom of God. Um, so, let's see. So, I'll go ahead and read the uh, parable of the sower and the soils. Let's see. 
Again he began to teach by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And when the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundred times as much. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, um, uh, in the explanation of the parable, um, he was telling his disciples that uh, the sower sows the word. Um, so he the seed was the word of God, as I was saying. Uh, but in modern times, a lot of people, they like to, uh, when they're sowing the seed, you know, they'll throw it on the, um, on the rocky soil, the shallow soil, you know, in the, on the pavement, and they'll throw it in the thorns, and they'll notice that the seed's not growing. And they'll say, well, what, what's wrong? What's going on here? And um, instead of trying to uh, throw it into good soil, they try to change the seed and they try to say, all right, well, maybe I'll take this seed, you know, the word of God, and I'll change it into something that can grow into shallow soil and be good there, um, which that's not good. There is only one kind of seed and all you, you know, it's the word of God and it doesn't change as God says. So changing the seed to match the soil doesn't work. Instead, you need to change the soil to match the seed. So, there's one way to make all these different kinds of soils, the pavement, the shallow soil, the thorny soil, to make all of them into good soil. And that's by um, plowing. And uh, plowing represents, you know, terrible destruction and just digging it all up and flipping it over in hard times. Um, I know we went through terrible times and we hit rock bottom before we were able to sprout and um, grow up as we did now but uh, one thing you have to remember it is not our job to plow the soil that's God's um, we leave it to him because if you plow the soil uh, nobody's gonna listen to you when you try to plant the seed thank you um, so it, it's just our job to plant the seed and to water it and earlier Patrick in his teaching was saying that, um, you know, you don't go around and you throw the seed. You don't just do that and hope that it will grow. Well, uh, that's called an evangelist. Um, and they don't garden. They just throw seeds and hope that some will land in good soil. Uh, now, if you want to be an actual teacher with disciples, you have to be what Patrick was doing, which is gardening. You have to tend to it, you know, water it every single day, care for it, build up little dirt mounds and pull out weeds all these little things, and it's a lengthy process, but you can almost guarantee that you get a good crop every time instead of just scattering seeds and uh, hoping that they'll grow, which that's still good. There's a, you know, there's a place for all of those things, but we all have different jobs. So, um, uh, 
the thing about the um, the soil is when it was in the good in the good soil is um, whenever the person has a pure heart and they are able to grow then you know if you have a hardened heart you can't really grow so it's only after um, you're plowed and you know you're this lush good soil that you can start to grow a good plant which is a pure heart uh, so the good soil um, you know when it starts growing it starts growing roots like you plant the seed and it starts these nice strong roots that go into the ground which is a symbol of a relationship with God and that's the most important thing um, in our walk our personal relationship with God and his son Yeshua and um, it's unseen by anybody else. You know, I can't tell what uh, Xavier's relationship with God is um, just by looking at him. That's between just you and God, or at least it should be. So, um, so after the good soil, the seed that's sown into good soil has nice big roots, which is a relationship with God, and it's nice and strong underground, then it starts sprouting up. The thing about the rocky soil, the shallow soil, is it immediately hears the uh, word of God and just starts growing straight up. It might have a few little roots on the surface, you know, maybe a couple inch roots, but it just sprouts up and puts all of its energy into growing upward. Um, so it has almost no roots and all of its relationship with God is above the surface. You know, everybody can kind of tell. Um, but in times of testing, the smallest yank uh, could pull it right out of the ground, or the sun could scorch it with next to no effort. So um, we need to remember to have good roots before we start growing. It's important to grow down first. And um, this is kind of pictured, you know, in the Bible, um, man is compared to a tree um, numerous times. You know, uh, actually in Mark chapter 8, in Matthew 7, Psalm 52, Psalm 1, actually, uh, verses 1 through 3. Uh, what is it? Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So that's the very first psalm comparing man to a tree. And, um, you know, when you look at a tree, you only see half of a tree. Uh, so, but you have to remember, where does the source of the life of the tree come from? It comes from the part that you can't see, you know, um, oh, thank you. Uh, you know, if you cut off a limb on the top of the tree, that tree is still going to live and it's still going to grow. But you start attacking the roots and it's going to start dying and losing its life. So that's just another representation that a personal relationship with God is a necessity in our walk. Um, so the second parable, um, this is the parable of the seed. It's a small one. It reads like this. Uh, and he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seeds upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up daily, and the seed sprouts and grows. 
How, he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the stalk, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. When the crop, uh, now when the crop permits, he immediately pulls, it puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So, um, this is saying that uh, we cannot grow other people's relationships with God. Uh, that is strictly up to them and up to God. Um, our job is, you know, just once again to water them, you know, give them teaching and um, help them along their walk, um, shade them from sun, that kind of thing. But we're not in charge of, you know, plowing or growing the plant or harvesting. That's not our job. Don't worry about that. So, um, so the third parable, this one is um, the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, and this one, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, read it for you. It says, And he was saying, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is the smallest of all the seeds that are upon the soil, um, yet when it is sown, it grows up and it becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches with the result that the birds of the sky can nest under its shade. Um, so this parable uh, is traditionally interpreted as the mustard seed being the word of God that grows into a huge tree that can provide shelter for anyone seeking it. Um, so that's, that's a perfectly fine interpretation. It's, you know, that's probably what it is. That's a correct translation or uh, interpretation. Um, but I think there's a, a parallel that runs right alongside it that works beautifully with it. Um, so, um, it's kind of strange though, because, um, in, uh, Matthew's parables, when it lists the actual seven kingdom parables, uh, there is another one, the parable of the woman leavening the dough, um, you know, with leaven. And it's kind of strange because leaven is usually seen as uh, sin in the Bible. So it would be strange why God would be saying that that's, um, you know, the kingdom of God is this leaven that leavens the lump. But yet it still works. Um, so it kind of has this, you know, two-sided thing to where one, it's the, you know, the word of, or the, the kingdom of God that is the leaven. But then, you know, there's this thing that leaven is usually seen as sin in the Bible. Well, this is, there's kind of this, par or this uh, parallel with the mustard seed parable, too. Um, so, first of all, I'd um, like to bring up that the mustard seed is not the smallest um, seed out there. It's pretty small, but it's, it's you know, you can still see it. And, um, you know, there's, there's pollen that flies around uh, that, you know, carries seeds smaller than it. Um, and when it grows a mustard tree, it doesn't grow into this huge tree. Um, like, you know, when you read the parable, you picture a tree like that oak over there. Um, it actually grows into this about 10 foot bush almost. Um, it's a very small kind of humble plant called a mustard plant. So uh, it looks more like a weed instead of like a tree. So um, Yeshua, it, this can be seen as him describing a, a fake mustard plant. Um, so this parable could be 
taken as a warning instead of a, um, or along with, you know, how the kingdom of heaven is, it could also be taken as a warning, saying, um, let's say that someone gets a hold of the word of God and changes it to appeal to others, and they turn it in this humble mustard plant into a massive, beautiful tree that seems so safe. Um, you know, an example of this would be the uh, uh, replacement theology or um, prosperity gospel saying that, you know, if you follow the, the Bible and go to church, God will keep you from pain and provide you with things that your heart craves. Um, or, you know, you know, churches with fog machines and lasers and all those kind of things where they seem so good and so wonderful. You know, they look beautiful and big, but um, really they're not right. Um, so this, that's kind of a dangerous tree to be around. Um, and if you remember, there, um, there was one creature that uh, Yeshua was saying that was hanging around the mustard tree, and that was the birds, that they would nest in its branches. Well, if you, uh, if you take these three parables and kind of group them all together, and you look back at the parable of the sower, when Yeshua is describing the, um, the seed that was sown among the pavement, he says the birds came and they ate up the seed. And he was explaining it as, um, uh, let's see. Okay, well, he was explaining the, um, the seed that fell among the, the pavement and the birds that ate it up. The birds were symbolized as the enemy. You know, Satan came and ate the seeds before, um, before it could grow. So the birds hanging around in this big, you know, beautiful, fake kingdom of God, um, that could be symbolized as, you know, Satan. Is he is always hanging around those kinds of areas, waiting to trap people with, you know, those kind of things, uh, replacement theology or, you know, prosperity gospel. So that's kind of a, a trap that seems safe at first, but it isn't. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but I wouldn't want to be hanging around a tree that the enemy has laid his nest in. Um, but that's just another, you know, interpretation of the parable. Um, it's not, there's no, that's not, you know, like actual, you know, 100% truth. I don't, it's just a, a parallel that runs alongside it. I think both of them are, are great. I think both of them work. But it's just something interesting to keep into account. Um, you know, you have to remember a quote by William Shakespeare, not all that glitters is gold. So, you know, <laughs> just got to watch out for those. But um, to wrap up the parables, I'd like to uh, talk about the seeds scattered among the pavement. Um, so before it was able to break into the ground, which was very hard, uh, it was eaten up by the birds. So... This soil is called someone that has a hardened heart and not a pure heart, you know, as we were talking about earlier. So, um, I'll ask you guys, who in the scripture is famous for having a hardened heart? Pharaoh, okay, that's what I was hoping for. So, um, yeah, Pharaoh and Exodus. Um, so I'll explain the difference between a hardened heart, which was Pharaoh, and a pure heart, which was Moses. Um, and I'll explain this in a uh, subject that I know a little bit about, um, metalworking. So, uh, this is called the annealing process. Um, 
when you heat up a piece of metal, you know, to where it's glowing red hot, and then dunk it into a uh, container of, say, oil or water uh, to cool it off, and it makes that big hissing noise with all the steam, uh, that's called quenching. So, you know, you're taking the, the hot um, rod of iron, and you're sticking it into a barrel of water, and it's, um, it's called quenching it. So, um, when you heat up any kind of metal, like when it's in the furnace and it's glowing red hot, it becomes soft. All metal does this, you know, no matter what you stick in there, if it heats up, it becomes soft. Um, and when you heat up a, or, um, but the thing is there's two different kinds of metals, like how there's two different kinds of woods. There's a uh, soft metals and hard metals, like soft wood and hardwood. Um, you know, so they have different um, attributes as to how they work when they're heated up. So when you heat up a soft metal, like gold, for instance, and quench it into, you know, you heat it up glowing hot, and you quench it into a barrel of water, it becomes even softer than it was before, and it's easier to work with. You can bend it, you can hammer it a lot easier, and it's just this really fun, pliable metal to work with. But when you heat up a hard metal like steel, uh, you, you know, you get it glowing white hot and you quench it into oil or water, it becomes 10 times harder than it originally was when it was, uh, before you heated it up. And it becomes brittle and easy to shatter instead of bending and, you know, pliable. So, um, this is the same concept for our hearts. The fire symbolizes hard times, um, you know, like when you're going through troubles, like for instance, an in exodus, when uh, all the plagues were happening and Pharaoh would cry out to Moses, all right, all right, you can go, you can take your people, you know, just uh, please end this and let it all be over. You know, his heart was like kind of a fake soft um, and he was giving them, you know, kind of a fake mercy there. Um, and the, you know, the metal is our hearts, um, which Pharaoh uh, had a, a heart of steel. It was a hard metal heart. Um, and the quench, you know, when you dip it into the water, that's considered like when the hard times are over, when they cease. So, um, when the plagues were finished, you know, every time a plague would end, Pharaoh would immediately, it said his heart, his heart would harden. And when all the, the bad times went away, you know, when everything was good and hunky-dory, as Mr. Gabe would say, um, his heart would harden back up and it would become brittle and, uh, hard again. So, um, so when Pharaoh's heart was in the furnace, like when it, when the plagues were going on, it was soft, um, and you know, he was pleading to Moses, but as soon as it quenched, uh, it was instantly hardened 10 times harder than it was before. And, you know, he made the labor worse for the, um, Israelites. So Moses, on the other hand, um, would experience hard times going through the desert and, um, you know, when it was over, when he'd get quenched in the water, um, he would, instead of his heart hardening, since his heart was made of gold, he would instantly fall on his face and worship God. You know, his heart would become softer. Um, and that's because he had a heart of gold, a pure heart, um, unlike Pharaoh, on the other hand. So uh, something interesting, a little connection, um, is that Yeshua says, uh, Blessed are the pure in, in heart, for they will see God. 
Well, uh, if you look back at Moses, he had a pure heart, uh, perhaps more than anybody of his time. Um, and it's interesting to read then that God took Moses and he placed him in the cleft of the rock and he actually allowed Moses to see his back. So, you know, it's kind of a, an interesting little concept. Um, you know, Moses had a pure heart. Yeshua says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Therefore, Moses saw God. It's kind of a little interesting connection. Um, but, um, so how do we get a pure heart? Um, I will explain that in a different teaching later down the road. <laughs> I'm not going to give you that one today because we don't have enough time for that. But um, it is not fun, first of all, to get a pure heart. It's way more fun to have a hardened heart, but that's not what you want. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, the conclusion of everything is that because uh, the Pharisees um, accusing Yeshua had hardened hearts, as he said, um, and the seed that fell on the pavement couldn't break through the ground, they could not receive Yeshua's message the way he had intended. And because the seed sown among shallow soil had no roots, but instead spent all of its energy on learning, you know, deep mysteries and spiritual junk food and everything like that, it got burnt out, you know, literally, by the sun. Um, so, the reason Yeshua spoke in parables uh, was to put his message into simple terms, so we wouldn't, uh, or not so we would be uh, perplexed by all this secret knowledge and everything. Um, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, it says, uh, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, you know, uh, have not a pure heart, I am nothing. So all that knowledge goes to waste, pretty much. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, that was basically my uh, teaching. So um, I'd like to go ahead and pray now, and afterwards uh, I can try to answer some questions. But um, uh, yeah, if you'd like to pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray to you tonight, giving thanks for this wonderful gathering that we can all have, and uh, for your feast days. We recognize that you are perfect and that we are not, and ask that you would mold us into a people that is willing to serve you, and that we would hold, that we would, um, hold love for you and love for our neighbor above everything else. Uh, I ask that you would please give us all clean hands and a pure heart, and help us stay faithful to you for the rest of our days. Uh, we give thanks to you for all the blessings that you've given us, and we give glory to you alone. In your Son, Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Um, if anybody has any questions, I can do my best to answer. If I can't answer them, uh, i probably tell you to pray about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, if nobody has any questions, then we'll uh, go ahead and wrap up and start the worship, and um, everybody can have a good time dancing and stuff. Hey, good job. Thank you. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm glad these things are recorded. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't wait for this. Oh, wait. That was awesome. Mr. Jeremy's next, right? Yeah, he's next.